Well, let me begin by saying, first of all, how gratified I am and encouraged that uh, with the response that we've received to uh, part one of this series, No Preaching Law. I do think that the average Christian wants to know and understand the law properly. They want to understand what is the role of the law in evangelism. Is, is the law something we should preach to sinners first? Should we bring them to Moses before we bring them to Christ? Uh, and I told you last time that that's simply not the case. There's, there's nowhere that the New Testament teaches that. I know it sounds very pious. It certainly sounds very logical that we want a sinner to be good and guilty, good and convicted before we offer them the gospel. But let me remind you that the gospel is a gospel of free grace. Uh, we don't have to torment the sinner's conscience, nor should we take it upon ourselves to do such a terrible thing before we offer somebody that which we have been so freely offered, and that is the gospel of grace, the grace that's absolutely sufficient. I mentioned to you before that, that nowhere in the New Testament did the disciples, the apostles, preach law before they preach the gospel, uh, either in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, uh, certainly not when they preached to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul did, uh, excuse me, Peter, when he went to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, did not preach, he did not come and say, well, I must first preach to you Moses. I must preach to you the Jewish law. I must preach to you the old covenant before I can offer you uh, any message and um, preach to you Jesus. It's not at all what Peter did. In fact, Peter had to overcome his own scruples tied to the law before he could even go visit with a, a Gentile. And so the law was not serving the gospel at that point. Peter went and simply began to tell Cornelius and his company about Jesus. It was as he was preaching Jesus, that the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and those with him, his associates. They received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. They were converted. And that, for Peter, became the sign that God had granted repentance to the Gentiles. And so when they went into Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem Council, when the great question was, what is the role of the law for the Gentiles now that they're being converted? Uh, it wasn't so that, uh, and Peter, it wasn't so that they could impose the law. The question was, is, do we impose the law? And the answer was, no, we don't. There are certain moral restrictions that we would request of the Gentiles not to eat things strangled uh, or, or to drink blood or or to uh, and to abstain from sexual immorality and so on, uh, but but they weren't saying you must first come to Moses before we can freely offer you the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the the actions of the apostles himself in the book of Acts and throughout the epistles never point to the fact that Paul, Peter. James, John, anyone preached the law to 
the Gentiles or to anyone else before they offered them that which was so freely offered to them, namely the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Now, we must understand that the grace that's involved in the gospel is a sufficient grace. It's all sufficient. Uh, throughout church history, we struggled with this question about grace. There was the the um, Pelagian heresy in the uh, 5th century, I believe it was, the same time of, uh, as Augustine was ministering. Uh, Pelagius was a, a monk who, who denied the necessity of grace to live the Christian life. And uh, so you had that extreme. And then you had those who thought, well, grace is really necessary. It's absolutely necessary, uh, but so are our works. And so they, uh, that was John Cassian and other other uh, men who taught that level of grace. Uh, but the Bible teaches that grace is sufficient. It's all sufficient. And thank God for it, because it is not only necessary, it is sufficient to bring conversion. Our salvation, from beginning, from the moment of regeneration to the time of its ultimate consummation and perfection, when we see Christ face to face, is a work of grace. There's never a point when somehow now it's up to me. That God has done all he can do, and now it's up to me. In my years as a young Christian, I, I even had pastors tell me that, well, you know, Rick, Jesus has done all he can do. It's really up to you now. So I had this mindset, this, this terrible theology, that somehow that God had saved me up to a point, and it was up to me to save myself the rest of the way well it, that didn't work out well for me and but thanks be to god in his mercy i was i saw the gospel i was able to come to the the doctrines of grace for what they are and that is an all-sufficient grace so we are saying that the law has no place in preaching to bring about conversions the law has no place in evangelism simply because we can't have it both ways. We can't say as Protestant Christians or Reformed Christians or Evangelicals, we can't say that we believe that the sinner is dead in trespasses and sins and therefore unable to respond to stimulus, unable to respond to spiritual stimulus and then go um, pummel them with the law thinking that somehow we're going to change their mind about Jesus. Now, we may, in fact, change their mind. If we go and we dump the Mosaic law on people prior to, to sharing the gospel with them, uh, they may come to Christ simply because they're trying to escape the law. That's not a good cause to come to Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law. The, the gospel is not of law. The gospel is of grace. And that's very hard. It's very hard for, for humanity, even people who are Christians, uh, are regenerate Christians, to understand. Uh, there is this delusion. There is this even seduction in our flesh that wants us to believe that we can tackle the law, we can embrace the law, and somehow prove ourselves to be worthy of it. And that will never happen. In ourselves, in our natural self, in our fallen state, we could not keep the law for a moment. 
Now, are people sinners? Yes. Are they under judgment? Absolutely. If they don't repent, will they suffer eternal condemnation? Yes. Yes, that's all true. And that may came up in a presentation of the gospel. But we don't dump the, the Mosaic law on them. We don't have to terrorize them with the law. Paul did not do that in Acts chapter 17 when he preached to the Greeks at Athens. Athens, read that section, Acts chapter 17. Paul did not mention the Mosaic law once, and yet he's preaching to this gathering of very religious Greeks. When Paul was in Acts chapter 20, I told you that, that he was speaking to the uh, elders at Ephesus and warning them about those who would come in, the fierce wolves would come in after he departed. And that these, these men would rise up both within and without the church and speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. And these would be lawmen. These would be men who would come in and impose law on the church. And this is exactly what happened in the church in, in the Galatia region. It's what happened in Corinth. And so Paul was making it very clear throughout his ministry that there was another gospel floating around out there that was seeking to impose itself, that men from Jerusalem had come up and they were imposing the law on to Christians. They were basically uh, given a backdoor denial of the sufficiency of the cross as well as the sufficiency of grace. So, just for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul makes this profound statement, speaking of himself and his, and his uh, associates. He says in verse 4, Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Now, the false teachers in Corinth were, were very articulate, uh, it appears. They were very um, credentialed. Uh, they were everything that Paul and his associates weren't, and so they were gaining a hearing. Uh, and they were questioning, causing the Corinthians to question Paul's credentials as an apostle. So Paul says, reminds them that my, my, his competence, that he and his associates' competence, is from God, not from men. Verse 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. If you don't have that marked in your Bible, let me encourage you to do so. 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Not of the letter. He's not a minister of the letter. Paul didn't come to the Corinthians and say, I must first preach to you the Mosaic law so that you will be sufficiently guilt-ridden and motivated enough to hear the gospel. <laughs> that's, again, that's the logic that people who do that use. Oh, you have to preach the law first, or people won't feel motivated to receive the gospel. I got news for you. People are not motivated to receive the gospel anyway. 
And if they are motivated after you bring in the law to them, it's only because they're self-preservation, not because they are somehow moved by the Spirit. Okay. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So, Paul's making it very clear. And then he goes on in verses uh, 7 through, well, the end of the chapter in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. Uh, And then into chapter 4, down to verse 6, where he explains the contrast. Now, please note this. The contrast between the, um, uh, the ministry of the letter as opposed to the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant. The new covenant is the ministry of the spirit, the spirit of life, not the letter that brings death. And so Paul goes on then to contrast these glorious, not that the the ministry of the letter of the law was not glorious in in its own way, but it was a fading glory. It was a temporal glory. But the glory of the new covenant, of the spirit, of which Paul is a minister, and of which you and I are both each ministers as as Christians, we are ministers of the new covenant of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so he draws this wonderful contrast and, and shows that it's only through the ministry of the Spirit that transformation occurs. So that he finally says in verse 18 of chapter 3, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit, let me just tell you, and the, and the ministry of the new covenant. Jesus, by the way, bled and died to consecrate the new covenant. He consecrated the new covenant in his blood. And at Pentecost, post-resurrection Pentecost, When the Spirit was outpoured, the new covenant was put into action, put into place, became enforced, so that we are no longer under the old covenant. The old covenant of the letter of the tablets of stone is obsolete. The new covenant is of the uh, the Spirit. The Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit within you, is the replacement for Torah, the law. The law is no longer written on tablets of stone. It is written on your heart and on your mind. So that we don't drag the law around with us. We don't, we don't fret about being law keepers or law observers. Including the dietary laws, including the feasts, including the Sabbath, including tithing, which is a huge one, and other forms of law keeping. We are called to walk in the Spirit. This is why Paul makes it very clear in Galatians chapter 5 that we should walk in the Spirit, and it is by the Spirit that we will not fulfill the deeds and the desires of the flesh. Very important. You could never do that under the law. There was no, never a time when you could to just say, oh, I'm going I'm to obey the law. I'm going to observe the law. We saw that in Romans chapter 7. I'm just going to obey the law and all is going to be well. We, we, the law was not sufficient for us 
to restrain the lusts of the flesh. The lusts of the flesh, in fact, were activated, were incited by the law. Paul said it in Romans 7, I would have not known that I was covetous had I not seen the law that said, uh, uh, do not covet. So the law can do a lot of things, but it cannot convert. And the reason it cannot convert, let me just emphasize one more time, is because people are dead. People are not morally sick. People are spiritually dead. The sinner is spiritually dead. If you don't understand that principle, then you, your, your theology is going to be out of port, out on a wrong course, and you're going to run shipwreck. So the, the first principle here is not that people are morally sick or morally disabled. They are spiritually and thus morally dead. Do they do good things? Yes, but they don't do them for the glory of God and for the magnification of the name of Jesus. They do them for their own self-interest in some degree or another. There are, there are certain people who are a bit more moral than others. Some sinners are more moral than other sinners. But in the final analysis, they're spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He means it. He doesn't mean kind of dead or metaphorically dead. He means dead in trespasses and sins. Now, you can't take a copy of the Ten Commandments down to the local funeral home and stand there over a corpse and preach the uh, Ten Commandments to that corpse and expect they're going to respond. It simply won't happen. So we can't have it both ways. My brothers and sisters who are in the Reformed world and in the, um, uh, the uh, Lutheran uh, circles uh, their intentions are good. They, they want to use the law properly. But you don't use something that's obsolete. And we'll get to that later. So stick with me. If you're, if you're not convinced, and you're struggling with me, and you're struggling with what I'm saying, just please stay with me. I, we may have to go two, three, or four uh, episodes in this series to be able to get the full impact of what I'm saying to you. So... Okay, so we understand that the, we are under a new covenant of the Spirit, that the Spirit is the replacement for Torah, the law. In fact, Pentecost itself, this is a very important insight, Pentecost itself was a, um, uh, an observance. It was, a, it was an agricultural festival, but it was also a remembrance of when Moses brought the law down at Sinai. It was a remembrance of when God gave the law to Israel through Moses. And so there was that aspect of the feast as well. And so it's no accident that God chose on that day, that feast day, when everyone would be in Jerusalem, to pour out the Spirit, which would be the second giving of the law, if you will, the second giving of the law, but no longer this time written by the finger of God on tablets of stone, but on, by the finger of God on minds and hearts. So that the law, in keeping with Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, 
that the law under the new covenant would now be written on hearts and minds, that God's people would have a new nature. They would no longer be children of wrath, but children of God. They would no longer be law breakers. They would be law, mark this, law fulfillers. They would be fulfilling the law because love is the fulfillment of the law, Paul says. Now, let me just tell you here, Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, it, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do. Do you hear that? The law was powerless to do. The law was powerless to do that because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that, this is the purpose clause in Greek, the purpose clause, the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Think of that. What a profound status we have before God from being children of wrath and to now being children of God, no longer under the fear of condemnation, but children who have been set free from the law of sin and death. For the law was powerless to be our helper in order that the righteous requirement of the law. So we're not talking here. Uh, some of you may have had people tell you, well, that's an antinomian or, a, or a, a licentious view of theology, but it's not. To, simp to say that we do not preach law for conversion, nor do we preach law for the rule of life of the Christian, is not an antinomian or a lawless stance. People always are afraid of that. People think, well, if we don't have law, we're just going to run wild. Well, <laughs> yeah, if we didn't have the Spirit, we would, yes. But what Paul's saying here is that because of the Spirit of life, and he'll go on later in Romans chapter 8 to declare that we are now people of the Spirit. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we don't preach law to the sinners because it's powerless to do anything other than uh, maybe torment a, a already tender conscience or to harden the hearts of somebody else. We can't, the, 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 the sinner is dead in sin, cannot respond to spiritual stimuli, no matter how much we appeal, no matter how much our frothy appeal and our preaching gets loud and, and vivid and so on. <laughs> we're not going to confront anybody with Moses. Do you hear what I'm saying? We don't bring people to Moses. We bring people to Jesus. Very important. The law was powerless to do things. Could not save. Weakened by the flesh. But the Spirit is the one who converts hearts and minds through the gospel. And then Paul will later on in Romans chapter 8 explain that the, 
that you are either in the spirit. If you are in Christ, you have the spirit of Christ in you. Thereby, you know you are in Christ because the spirit of Christ dwells in you. That's how you know. You don't know by circumcision. It is not a matter of circumcision. It's not a matter of dietary laws. It's not a matter whether you keep the Sabbath. It's not a matter whether you tithe. It's not a matter whether you keep the feasts. It's not a whether you send money to some uh, uh, Israeli uh, relief fund. Uh, it's none of these things. You know you are a Christian because the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And that is a a realm that is an absolute, meaning that you are either, a person is either in the flesh or in the spirit, and you don't move back and forth between them. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, makes it clear, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ, period. No matter how much they attempt to keep the law, if they allow themselves to be circumcised and keep the feasts and keep the Sabbath and tithe and, and do other law-keeping-like uh, uh, rituals and observations and they, and they eat kosher and, and they clean their house of it. I mean, the Hebrews root movement is simply an attempt to deny the work of the Spirit in the Christian's life. So that's, that is the contrast that I want you to understand, the dichotomy here, is that under the new covenant, we are not lawless because we have the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who now restrains us. The Spirit is the one now who now moves us and, and, and moves us to love God and to love neighbor and to and desire and to long for holiness. It isn't the law. We don't hang the Ten Commandments on our house and, and sit there longingly look at them and think how wonderful it would be to be holy. No, we, we have the Spirit within us. And so it is the Spirit who replaced Torah, the law, now written on our hearts and minds. And we are, and we are in the realm of the Spirit, not the realm of the flesh. So, um, I'd hoped in this second sermon to be able to get to John chapter 15 and 16. It doesn't look that we're going to do that, but this is good. This is okay. Stick with me, I hope. Uh, stay with me. Uh, this is very important for you. Uh, every Christian ought to know the role of the law in both conversion and evangelism and in their life. Uh, it's very important because there, there are traditions that tell you, for instance, that the law is the rule of life. The, the Ten Commandments is the rule of life for the Christian. Let me just tell you, it is not. The rule of life for the Christian is Jesus himself. And your rule of life is to walk by the Spirit. That's the rule of life for the Christian. We don't look to the, to the law to decide how we should live as Christians. We look to Jesus. Think of that. Nowhere in the New Testament are we told to look to the law to decide how to live our lives as Christians. We are told very explicitly, 1 John 2, 6, that we are to walk or live as Jesus lived. And we know, of course, that we can only do that by the Spirit. So, um, let, me, let me just say also, 
that if the law was sufficient to convict of sin, then all of Israel would have repented and come to Christ during his life and ministry. The people of Israel had the law. They had the law. They heard the law read every Sabbath. They had the feasts. They had the sacrifices. They had the teachings. They had the rabbinic traditions. They had everything going. And still, they did not receive Jesus. Except those who were born of God by a sovereign work of all sufficient grace, through the hearing of the gospel, those received Jesus. And as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. Not because of their will, not because of the, the will of man, not because of anything with the flesh, a natural person, but born of God. So I think we'll pause there then. There's so much to this that it's good that we talk about it, that we let it unfold. Uh, I have a lot in my notes here that we will want to get to. But let me just summarize what I've told you today then. Um, we want to know what is the role of the law in both the sinner's life and in the life of the Christian. We understand that we have something that has changed with the coming of Christ. We do not diminish that. And for 2,000 years, certain men and teachers and heretics have always sought to diminish or convolute the work of Christ as being somehow insufficient. For 2,000 years, theological systems and, and, and teachers and heretics have, have sought to diminish the sufficiency of the cross, to diminish grace, making it necessary but not sufficient. And they've always sought to impose the law on you. It's another gospel, and we're not going to stand for it. We've learned that the apostles did not preach the law before they proclaimed the gospel. Nowhere can you find them doing that, and nowhere will you find them doing that. Israel had the law, but they did not keep it. Remember that. Uh, Stephen, those were some of his final words before he was martyred by the Jews. He told them their own history and their own story. And he, then he finally said to them in Acts chapter 7, verse 52, Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. End quote. That one indictment, beloved, there is one biblical indictment right there. 
that simply possessing the law, simply being told about the law, simply reading the law, or simply barking at a poor sinner, the Mosaic law is not going to convert any minds or hearts. Stephen just said that, and he ended up being stoned to death. So, next time we're together, I promise we'll get into John chapter 15 and 16, where we discover what is the role of the Holy Spirit in conversion, how the Holy Spirit and the Spirit alone through the gospel brings about conversion, and why that's so important to you as you go on to live your Christian life. Until then, may the Lord strengthen you, comfort you, illuminate your mind to these things. I invite you to join me in prayer and study and uh, keep an open mind. If you disagree with me, I understand. I, I respect that. But please do come back. Please come back and listen and hear me out. We may go three or four sermons on this series. Uh, and Once you've heard me out, if you still disagree with me, I will certainly respect that. I will anyway, but, but I, I do hope you hear me out. And may the Lord bless you and strengthen you. Amen.